Amen. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to Genesis chapter 14. We're in Genesis chapter 14 as we continue a sermon series that we have begun on the life of Abraham that we have entitled Finding Faith in a Fallen World. Uh, We've said that we want to study the life of Abraham because he is a major player in at least three world religions that over two billion people adhere to. And so in the Christian faith, uh, Abraham is referred to as the father of all who believe. So if we're going to understand cultures of the world and religions and even Christianity, then we have to know something about Abraham. If you haven't been with us or you're like me and you just forget, let me get you up to speed on where we are. The Bible introduces Abraham at the end of Genesis chapter 11, uh, where he is a pagan worshiping foreign gods far from the promised land. And in Genesis 12, the beginning of Genesis 12, God calls Abram to come to the promised land. And Abram believes God and he obeys him and he goes. He brings his nephew Lot with him. That was what we saw at the end of 11 and beginning of Genesis 12. Then in Genesis 13, God has prospered Abraham and Lot. And they are beginning to gather lots of stuff so much that the land can't sustain them where they are. And so Abraham gives Lot a choice. You pick the land you want, and I'll go in a different direction. And so in Genesis 13, we saw Lot choose the land close to the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. So as we come to Genesis 14 and verse 1, we're introduced to an alliance of four kings that go to war against an alliance of five kings that are introduced in Genesis 14 and verse 2. And included in those five kings that are having war waged against them are the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah. Now, I must tell you, when we think of war, we tend to think of wars like World War I or World War II where nation states, big nations composed of a big population, have big armies that fight against one another. And we have to adjust our thinking a little bit. Because what we're presented with here in Genesis 14 are not nation states, but these are cities. So they're smaller, some of them five or 6,000, some of them as big as 50 or 60,000, but the armies are smaller. And so instead of thinking of presidents of nations, you need to be thinking of these kings of these cities more like mayors with smaller armies. And typically, when one army begins to win, the other one, because they haven't been trained so well, just begins to run. And so the army either pursues those that are running or just takes all the stuff and then leaves. That's typically how these battles look at this point in time. And in verse 4, we're told that for 12 years, the cities of these five kings had served this one king named Kedor Laomer was his name. And that these five cities had served him, but they had rebelled against him. Now, basically what that means, if you've seen any mafia movie, uh, then you know what this is about. Basically, when they serve him, it just means they send him money and he protects them, right? And they send this money every year. He doesn't have troops that are occupying them. He basically just takes a tax. And so after 12 years of paying this money and not ever seeing him, these cities just say, well, I'm not paying money anymore. And so they have rebelled against his rule because they've stopped paying him this money. So he gets together some kings that he's in alliance with, and he comes and attacks them. And we see 
that when these five kings come, or the four kings come to attack the five kings, they conquer them. And they take all their people, men, women, and children, and they're carrying them off to a foreign land. They're taking all their possessions, cattle, sheep, anything that they could carry, they would take off with them. And if you read in verse 12, Lot, Abraham's nephew, because he was living in this region of Sodom and Gomorrah, Lot and his family and all his stuff are carried off in this war that has taken place. That's the background leading us up to Genesis 14. I want to begin reading in verse 13, and I'll read through verses verse 16. So if you would hear now God's word, beginning in Genesis chapter 14, verse 13. Then one who had escaped came and told Abram, the Hebrew, who was living by the oaks of Mamre, the Amorite, brother of Eshcol and Aner. These were allies of Abram. When Abram heard that his kinsmen had been taken captive, he led forth his trained men, born in his house, 318 of them, and went in pursuit as far as Dan. And he divided his forces against them by night, he and his servants, and defeated them and pursued them to Hobah, north of Damascus. Then he brought back all the possessions and also brought back his kinsmen lot with his possessions and the women and the people." Let's pray together as we come to God's word. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for this word. I pray that you would use it in our lives this day. Sometimes it is hard for us to believe that you can take a document some 4,000 years old and use it in our lives. But Holy Spirit, I pray that you would do what only you can do, that you would come and that you would use the words that you inspired through Moses and the preaching of the word in order to do the work that you want to do in the lives of your people. We open ourselves up to you. We pray that you would come now and do your work. And I ask that you'd be willing to do it even through the sin-stained lips of a foolish preacher. For it is in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. So Abram's nephew Lot has been captured and is being carried off with all his stuff and... All the people in these cities close by have been captured and are taken off. And so Abram hears about what happened. He takes 318 trained men that have been born in his household, and he leads them after this caravan that has carried everyone off. And so he goes after this convoy, and as he approaches it, he takes his 318 men, divides them up, attacks at night, and is able to conquer these folks and to free Lot and all the people of this area and get the possessions, and he's bringing them back. Wow, great story. Thank you so much. What, what, what are we supposed to take away from that, right? Well, what does that have to do with our lives today? Abram is a great conqueror. God was with Abram. Usually we say, well, God is, will be with us in our battles, and we begin to to talk like that. Well, let's look at the scripture and let's think about what it was given for so that we can better apply it to our lives, okay? If you're with us on Wednesday night, the Wednesday night men's group, we are learning to do this on Wednesday night. So we're going to go through the process that if you were with us, this is what we're learning to do, to apply the scripture, all right? And one of the things we've learned to do is to ask this, why was this given? And the reason why, the, and we look and we figure out why it was given by looking at who it was given to. So who is the original author? Who wrote down Genesis? Do you remember? Moses. Good. So Moses 
several hundred years later, is writing this down. And the original audience, the first people reading this, would be who? The children of Israel. They've come out of Egypt. They're headed to the promised land. And they're on the verge of coming into the promised land. And they're going to conquer the land. And they're given this account of Abraham. And before they go into the promised land, the land has already been divided up amongst the 12 tribes of Israel. And they all have their region that's theirs. And they're going to have to take the land as they go in. And what happens as they go in to take the land, some tribes take their land very easily. But other tribes run into great resistance, and they have trouble taking the land that is theirs. And the message for the original audience is, look, sometimes God's people have to help their brothers and sisters who are in trouble. So as they go into the land, they have learned about this account of Abraham and it assures them that God is going to help them as they go to the aid of their brothers and sisters. So they are encouraged to go to the aid of their brothers and sisters who need their assistance. That's why this was originally given. Now, if that's what the original, if that's what it was for for them, how do we apply that to our lives? Well, you know, we're not exactly fighting military battles. I think of Ephesians chapter 6, down around verse 12, where we're told that our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but it's against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of evil in this dark world, and against the spiritual forces in the heavenly realms, that our battle is more of a spiritual battle. So while we don't fight military battles... Our brothers and sisters still get carried away by things as well, don't they? We have brothers and sisters in the Lord who are carried away by the spiritual forces of evil in this dark world. We have brothers and sisters, people who are believers in Christ, who get carried away by lust and pornography. We have brothers and sisters who get carried away by drugs and alcohol. We have brothers and sisters who get carried away by consumerism and materialism and the love of money and things. We have brothers and sisters who get carried away by popularity and by success. We have brothers and sisters who get carried away with worrying about even good things like our kids or politics. And when we have brothers and sisters who get carried away by these things, this passage would teach us that when that happens, we are to go to the aid of our brothers and sisters. I think of Galatians 6 and verse 1, where we're told that if anyone is caught in sin, you who are led by the Spirit should restore that person gently, that we're to look to restore them. And... We should be careful as we do so. We should watch ourselves because or, or, we too may be tempted by those things. But Galatians 6.2 goes on to tell us to bear one another's burdens. And in this way you fulfill the law of Christ. That we're supposed to carry the load that another one of our brothers and sisters has. That we help them with the load that they have. I think of Jesus talking in Matthew chapter 18. Do you remember that story that he tells? He says, suppose a man has a hundred sheep and one of them wanders off. 
He says, what does he do? Will he not leave the 99 to find the one who has gone astray? And he calls us to do so as well. Certainly, those of us who are called by his name would be people who would go to the aid of our brothers and sisters who are caught up in things that are, that are leading them astray. I think of Jesus himself, who was willing to leave the perfection of heaven to put on a human body. Why did he do that? To rescue all of us who have been carried away by our sin and our pride and our brokenness. Surely we who call ourselves by his name Christians, that's what we're to do as well. What do you do if a fellow believer goes astray? How do you typically respond? I tried to think about that. Typically, we just, you know, kind of shake our head. Mm, I hate to hear about so-and-so. That's awful what they've gotten caught up in. And, and then we, we, we gossip with each other about it, right? But we'll call it a prayer request so we don't feel badly about it, you know? I mean, just pray for so-and-so. He's gotten caught up in this. You know, I hate that. But, you know, it, wasn't, it was easy to see it coming because I saw him get involved with these things. And we can begin to talk to one another. Let's go to the person. Let's talk to them when we see them going astray. When they go astray, let's go to them where they are. Let's speak the truth in love. Let's do what we can to bring them back. Jesus said he came not to be his life. And in John chapter 20, he says, even as the Father sent him, so he sends us into the world filled with the Spirit, with the same ministry. We are people who want to restore others, who go to the aid of brothers and sisters, who bear one another's burdens, who leave the 99 to go after the one who has gone astray. It's interesting to me here, Abram led 318 trained men born in his house. I wonder, are we training people to go after those, to go after brothers and sisters who have gone astray? Do we train people to do that? You understand that if we don't train, or we're still training, we're telling folks that that's not important. Or when we just talk about people and say, Gosh, I hate what happened to them. We're, we're training those in our midst just to gossip, but not to go and do something. We should be more intentional about training our folks to go after those who've been carried away in some kind of sin or in some kind of trouble. We've got folks who are spiritually born again in our house that cannot help another who goes astray because they're really not trained how to help themselves, let alone how to help someone else. This account teaches us that God's people come to the aid of brothers and sisters when they're carried away, and that we train those in our house to do so as well. I call us to that in our midst, and I hope you have a good conversation about what that could look like in your community groups tonight. I want to press on in the account, though. I want to look at Abram with the kings of Sodom and Salem, okay? I want to look at him with these other two kings. You see, Abraham has been triumphant, and he's coming back home. And we talk a lot about how to get through hard things and how to get through hard times, and we sing about when we go through the valley. 
But you know, one of the biggest temptations for the people of God, yes, is to, is to doubt God when things are hard. But i got to be honest with you. We don't handle success very well. Some of the worst times in the history of the church is when the church becomes affluent, when the church has political power. We do not handle success very well as believers. So let's watch how Abraham handles this success, this victory in his life as he comes and he interacts with the kings of Sodom and the king of Salem. Look at verses 17. I'll read through the end of the chapter. After his return from the defeat of Kedolaomer and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Sheva, that is the king's valley, and Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God Most High, and he blessed Abram and said, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. And the king of Sodom said to Abram, Give me the persons, but take the goods for yourself. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have lifted my hand to the Lord. That means he's taken an oath. I've lifted my hand to the Lord, God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, that I would not take a thread or a sandal strap or anything that is yours, lest you should say, I have made Abram rich. I will take nothing but what the young men have eaten and the share of the men who went with me. Let Anar, Eshkol, Mamre take their share. It's interesting to see Abram interact with these two kings who come out to meet him as he returns victorious. I think we're invited to contrast the response of these two kings because they respond very differently. Did you see that? They respond very differently. Look at verse 17. The king of Sodom went out to meet him. Okay, so the king of Sodom went out. And then we read in verse 18, where Melchizedek, the king of Salem, brought out. He brought out bread and wine. He brought out things that would feed and nourish this army that has been off and is fighting. Right? So one of them went out, one of them brought out, brought things out, brought gifts out to them. And notice the first words. The first words of Melchizedek, king of Salem, Blessings on Abraham from God Most High. Blessings, blessed be to God who has delivered your enemies into his hands. Praise for Abram. Praise for God, acknowledging that God is the one who has given him success. And what's the first word out of the mouth of the king of Sodom? Did you see that? Verse 21, give me. <laughs> give me. What a contrast. Blessings on Abraham, blessings for God who's given us this victory. Give me the people, and you keep the stuff for yourself. He's coming out and making this deal, and at first I thought, okay, well, he's negotiating. Look, you keep the stuff. I want my people back. But as I read, this guy's not even being that generous. This was pretty much the custom of the time, that if you went and, and freed people, then you got all the stuff. And the king and the city just got their people back. That was sort of the custom, the standard operating procedure of the time. So this guy's not offering anything more than what was typically done. There's no gratitude. There's no thanksgiving. I mean, think about it. 
Abram just defeated the people who defeated you, right? I mean, he's presumably stronger militarily because these kings came in and just wiped you out, and then Abram just went and beat the folks who beat you. You would think there would be some thank you, <laughs> praise be, even if you're not going to praise Abraham's God, praise be to Abraham, we're so thankful for what you've done, take this stuff, and none of that, right? No praise to God or to Abraham for what he has done. And Abraham responds and says, listen, I wouldn't take a thread from you. I wouldn't take a shoelace, lest you say you are the one that made me rich. So how should we respond to success? How is it we should respond? Should we respond just like everybody else does? That's what the king of Sodom does. He offers the deal that, that's always made in these situations. No, I think as the people of God, we're called to handle it differently. Melchizedek, king of Salem, he's not even one of the defeated folks, and he's coming out bringing supplies, bringing food and drink, praising God, praising Abram for what he's done, exhibiting great joy and thanksgiving gratitude, taking a share of what he has, Praising God, recognizing that God is the one who gave the success. And what does Abraham do? Abram responds by giving him a tenth of all he's collected. He gave a tithe. Oh, no. Here he goes. This is where they go with the play for the money, right? Pass the offering plates again. We didn't get enough. That's not at all what this is about, Right? Tithing or giving to God is a way that we give thanks to God. It's not some kind of tax as if all the money is ours and, and we give some to God to try to buy him off. Our giving of a tenth is to remind us that all of it is God's. What we have in our possession and what we don't have in our possession. That it all belongs to God. And that he has blessed us. And we show thanks to him. And as a reminder to us, we give a tenth out of what the Lord has given to us. We give it back to the Lord to use as he sees fit. How do you respond to success? Sharing with others what we have. Giving credit to God. Blessing those who do good. Offering thanksgiving to God. Those are the ways we're taught to respond to success. But I want to talk a little bit more about Abram and this mysterious figure, Melchizedek. You see him there in verses 18 to 20. We've kind of contrasted him with the king of Sodom. But there's a, been a lot of ink spilled over who this Melchizedek is. Well, let's just look and see what the text says. His name is Melchizedek. Um, his name means king of righteousness. A lot of names in the Bible mean something. But I think that tells us something about him. He's king of righteousness. That's his name. His title is he is the king of Salem. Salem, that S-L-M root. 
from where we get Shalom. He's the king. There are a lot of cities with the name Salem, like Jerusalem, the city we're familiar with. But he's the king of Salem, or the king of Shalom, the king of peace, the prince of peace. One who gives great praise to Abram, but ultimately praise to the God who has given success. Evidently, he's a monotheist. You don't see a lot of those. Most folks are pagan and worship many gods. This guy is a king of a city, but he's also a priest. That wasn't unusual. A lot of times your head of state was also the head of all the religions. But this guy believes in one God and gives praise to God most high, the one who made heaven and earth, the same God that Abram takes his oath to later on. And he comes and he brings bread and wine. Now, for many of us in the church, we think Lord's Supper when we hear that, right? When we hear bread and wine, the Lord's Supper has not been instituted yet. The Passover meal has not been instituted yet. I think he's just bringing a meal out to these folks who are undoubtedly hungry. And he provides for them. But it does make you think about the this one who is both king and priest, king of righteousness, bringing bread and wine. Lord, sit and until I make your enemies a footstool, which we quoted in the Hebrews call to worship that we had this morning. In verse 3, he says people will offer themselves to this one. In verse 4 of Psalm 110, David will say the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind, you are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek, this one that we see mentioned here in Genesis 14. So later, God promises to send a Messiah, an anointed one, who will be the king, who will also be a priest, a priest in the line of Melchizedek, that the Messiah, the promised one, priest and king, and a priest in the order of Melchizedek. Now, Abraham doesn't see that or doesn't know that at this time, so if I restrict myself to just what Abraham sees, surely Abraham must realize that doing great things for God, like rescuing his kinsman, Lot, that that's not what allows him to come to God. But we come to God through the priest that God has established. Here, for Abraham, it's Melchizedek. But for us, that one who makes the way for us to come to God, the one that serves as a mediator between God and the people is Christ Jesus our Lord. Hebrews chapter 5 and again in chapter 6 and and in depth in chapter 7 tells us that Melchizedek here points us to Jesus and reminds us as we've read in the call to worship and our confession of sin and the promise of pardon that our doing good things is not what allows us to come to God. That we come to God through the priest that he has established Christ Jesus, our Lord. We come to God through Jesus. Jesus even said that, didn't he? 
John 14 and verse 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So I have good news for you this morning. There is a way for you to come to God. For many of us, we hesitate to come before a holy God because we know we fall short of his glory. We know we don't deserve to come. We think if, he, if you knew what I had done, you wouldn't call me to come before a holy God. But the fact that we come to God through Jesus means it doesn't matter how bad your past is because we don't come to God based on our record. We don't come to God based on what we've done. We come before a holy God based on what Jesus has done, his perfect record of righteousness, his sacrifice for our sin on the cross. That enables us to come before God. It also confronts us in our righteousness. Many of us think that we deserve something from God because we've done good things. Because we feel like we've been pretty faithful and we're pretty good folks. And when God doesn't do what we want to do, we get angry with God. We believe that it's our good works or our righteousness entitle us, merit us something. And we're told no. That even our best works are as filthy rags. And our only hope to stand before a holy God is the finished work of Christ on the cross. Many today are restless. They're depressed. Many of us try to numb ourselves. Nothing really satisfies. When we do think we're going to find something that satisfies, it doesn't satisfy for very long. And the Bible says the reason for that is because you were made for God. You were made for a relationship with him. You were made to operate in a certain way that brings great glory to him. And that you will be restless and depressed or numb until you find your rest in him. Jesus is the one who makes a way for us to come to God by his one-time sacrifice on the cross. He now sits at the right hand of God waiting to come back and to make all things right. Do you know what he does? Do you ever wonder that? What's Jesus doing? He's just sitting at the right hand of God waiting on God to say, okay, go back and make everything new. I mean, what does he do? He just sits like forever. He's been sitting there for 2,000 years. The scripture tells us that the whole time he is interceding. He is praying for you and for me, that he intercedes for us, praying the prayers we would pray if we knew all that he knew. And he intercedes with the Father for us. And I call you this day to come to God through the priest that he has established, Jesus who sympathizes with our weakness, who is tempted in every way as we're tempted yet is without sin, and who even now sits at the right hand of the Father interceding for you and for me. Let's pray and ask him to help us to come to the Lord. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, 
There are as many reasons as there are people in this room for why we do not come to you. I can't anticipate them all, but you know what they are. And so I just pray that you would do your work in the lives of your people and that you would break down whatever barriers it is that we feel like we have for coming to you. Thank you that you have once and for all broken down all the barriers that separate us from you because of the finished work of Christ on the cross. It is in his name that we pray. Amen.